0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Professor Steve Martin, who is the Chief Executive of the Wales Centre for Public Policy, which is a recently established think tank uh, within the auspices of Cardiff University. And we're in... The Pierhead building, which is, of course, part of the National Assembly's estate in Cardiff Bay, so if there's a bit of background noise, uh, that's because um, there are quite a few uh, new graduates outside who are whooping it up, Um, but there we are. So, Steve, first of all, tell me a bit about your background. Where are you from originally?
1: Yeah, well, like everybody else, I think, in Wales, I can claim a great-grandfather who was Welsh, but I'm afraid that's the limit of my Welsh roots. I was born and brought up in kent um in one of the rougher parts of kent actually people talk about kent as the garden of england but the town where i was raised is sometimes described as the compost heap oh yeah in which that one is that garden, that? well now i'm going to be in trouble with my family back in kent so i was born born and bred in chatham which is on the north kent well charles Coast. dickens used to live there he so did. It's not that yeah. bad. and yeah. there's a dockyard and so yeah. All
0: that. oh very good yeah and uh then i think you uh, after school went on to oxford yeah. Where did you develop your interest in uh, social research?
1: So I was one of that generation who benefited fantastically from going to a very ordinary, actually quite rough primary school, taking the 11 plus without even knowing that we were taking an exam and somehow finding our way into to grammar school. Um, and there I encountered a whole series of really inspirational teachers um, and I ended up going to Hartford College in Oxford in the very late 70s, early 80s. And at the time, Hartford was one of one or two very progressive for the time colleges, which was entirely co-educational, the first, I think, to to have women as well as men in the same college. And it had a policy of deliberately targeting state school kids who they thought had potential, and for some reason they thought, sort of thought that I did. So I went there and did a geography degree, enjoyed Oxford immensely, but got to the end of my degree thinking if I, if I were lucky enough to be asked to stay on at Oxford, which, no guarantee, I, I probably would have ended up doing quite a theoretical kind of thesis or a master's. And by then, what I wanted to do, idealistic though it sounds, is if I was to do research, to do research that would make a difference in some way. And so I ended up right at the other end, as it were, of the academic league tables of the time at, at a, a small university called Aston on a bypass in the in city Birmingham. And I went there because they were advertising a PhD to look at whether job creation schemes really created jobs and how one would know if they did. It a big debate at the time, less of an issue perhaps now. But but at the time, government would claim we've invested in such and such a scheme and it's created X thousand jobs. And I was interested to know whether it really did and if so, how how we could demonstrate that. So that was the first time... That I really got involved in what you might call social research. And then did you
0: just go straight into academia after you'd done your doctorate?
1: Yes I did so I, I'm a career academic <laughs> and I guess I shouldn't apologize for that but but my research has always been quite close to policy and practice so I, I've never been patient enough to sit in the library for very long. I go to the occasional academic conference but But what I really get a buzz out of is trying to grapple with what you might call real world issues and bring evidence to those in a way which again I hope helps to at least inform policy debate even if it doesn't influence the eventual outcome and I think there are instances actually where some of the research we've done has has influenced the decisions that have been made. Give me an example of that. Um, So I I guess this is leaping right up to the present, but in in my current role, and we could maybe talk a bit later about how I got to that, um, some of the research which we've done as the Wales Centre of Public Policy in the last four or five years I I think has had a demonstrable impact on decisions which ministers have made. And I don't want to say that everything that we've done has done that, uh, but there are examples where we've been able to bring evidence... Two ministers, which has in some ways stood assumptions on their heads and and, and in doing that helped to change policy direction. Now I'm sure there are all sorts of other factors which have influenced that and I'm not one of those who says that policy should be entirely evidence-led. I think that's unrealistic and probably wrong in principle in a democracy, but leave that aside for a minute. Um, So for example, the, the piece of work which people generally quote is a couple of years ago when the First Minister asked us to have a look at the potential impacts of offering free childcare to parents of three and four year olds in Wales. Um, There's quite a lot of politics swirling around this question too. The UK coalition government at the time have made an offer in England. politicians of all persuasions in Wales were wondering what Wales should do kind of as an equivalent. Um, And all of the parties were in one way or another offering free childcare to certain kinds of parents. We were asked to model what the impact would be both on maternal, particularly employment rates, but whether parents would go back to work if they were afforded this kind of childcare free. And secondly, what impact would it have on household poverty or child poverty, particularly? The assumption being that if you provide some free childcare, parents will return to work or work longer hours. That means the household income is higher and therefore you're doing something good to address child poverty. We worked with experts in London at an organisation called Frontier Economics, and they modelled the impact of a universal free childcare offer for three to four-year-olds in Wales. And the results were uh, alarming, (laughs) and I didn't enjoy taking those back to the government, but but in brief, the modelling showed this will cost the Welsh Government a significant amount of money in the region of £160 million a year. Uh, It will have almost no impact at all on child poverty and the reason it wouldn't have that desired impact, the experts told us, was because the international evidence base shows that a free childcare offer of 30 hours a week, say in term time, doesn't match the flexible way in which parents are going to need to work so unless you can find employment probably in a school actually so that your working hours match the, the hours which are provided by the free childcare offer it's very unlikely to tip you over into being able to take a job where previously you couldn't and the news just kept getting worse and worse from this modeling because it also showed to the extent that parents did return to work they will probably lose income from welfare benefits so there's very little incentive for them to do that. And so in practice, what the Welsh Government would be doing would be subsidising the UK Government because it's the UK Government that picks up the costs of the benefits which parents are no longer having to receive because they've got their own income. So uh, we had an interesting meeting with the First Minister and his advisers where, to his eternal credit, he, he said, it's been a really interesting piece of work which has got us to think about questions that we wouldn't necessarily have asked. The outcome was the Government's proposal to pilot childcare in different parts of Wales, and to think about, instead of a universal childcare offer, targeting it on parents who were already in paid employment 16 hours or more a week. Now, if you believe the modelling, that might still not be a great thing to do, but it significantly reduces the amount of cost that the Welsh Government is putting in. Um, another example, perhaps a bit more positive and a bit less contentious, we, we were asked by Minister for Tackling Poverty to look at the whole question of intergenerational worklessness. So the idea that there are maybe three, four generations where nobody in the family has had paid employment. And again, this is a couple of years ago, but there was a lot of talk about how do we break that cycle of work worklessness and the associated poverty and other social problems that might go with it. We worked with experts in Warwick University and again the answer they they came up with from their analysis of the evidence was counterintuitive and they said there are actually very few families in Wales and in the UK more generally where nobody has worked for say three generations. Uh, small numbers of families produce quite kind of compelling anecdotes and probably every AM knows a small number of families who are in that position, but in the totality of the population, they're a very, very small minority, according to the analysis. Now, that, that still doesn't mean we shouldn't try and help those families and, and those individuals, but it, it directs policymakers' attention to a different kind of issue, which is that for most people who are at risk of poverty because they're not earning enough into the household, the, the issue is low-paid, insecure jobs. So people might be cycling in and out quite rapidly of a series of quite fragile work situations, seasonal employment or jobs that come and go or jobs with zero-hours contracts. So, so we came back with an answer which said, well, um, we're sure that there are some households where there's been nobody working for a long time, but the much bigger issue for a much larger section of the population and for the Welsh economy, therefore, is how do we create decent jobs... Uh, with opportunities for people to progress over time. And that's led us into an, a whole stream of work which has looked at job progression, which sectors of the Welsh economy offer prospects for career progression for people who probably don't come in with very many formal qualifications. We're doing some work at the moment looking at other ways for people who perhaps haven't come out of school with a lot of formal qualifications and maybe had a family or whatever to nevertheless enter into nursing or teaching, how do people working in the social care sector, big and expanding sector of the economy, how do those people actually have opportunities to pick up skills, training and progress along a career route and up a, up a career ladder? To, there, there's a couple of examples. There are others that I could bore on about.
0: You're an academic, uh, not a politician, yeah. uh, Steve. I guess sometimes politics and politicians can be characterised as seeking to come up with simplistic solutions Mm -hmm. or at any rate simple solutions in order to appeal to an electorate who uh, may see things in um, ways uh, that are actually more simple than things really are. Mm -hmm. And just from what you've been saying about these two particular pieces of work that you've been involved in, I think gives a very good illustration of how society is much more complex Mm. than many people think, and how politicians perhaps sometimes ought to be a little wary about making simplistic promises uh, to the electorate uh, and using rhetoric to uh, whip people up, etc., etc., whereas what is necessary, I think you you would probably be an advocate of, is that although I know that you said earlier that evidence-based policy isn't as it were the be all and end all of uh, of politics nevertheless it has to underpin it Mm. so do you think as a society now we have got the right balance between political idealism Mm. and the reality that is emerge that emerges once research is done
1: Mm. i am a fan of political idealism but i would like the solutions which people then adopt in line with their political values manifesto and so on to at least be based on an understanding of is it likely to work or not. So uh, it's not my mission to strip ideology out of the public policy debate in Wales. It would be presumptuous of me to do that, and I think it would be probably wrong as well. But it's also, I think, daft for us to jump to policy solutions without first checking is there evidence that they're likely to achieve the things that we want to achieve. And that, for me, becomes all the more important when resources are tight and we perhaps can't afford the luxury of investing in interventions which we're unsure about whether they're going to have a good effect or, even worse, where there's evidence from other parts of the country or uh, other parts of the world or even from past experience here, which suggests it's very, very likely they're not going to have the effects that we want. So, so our role is to try and be a bridge between research evidence, which, as you say, is often quite complicated, quite nuanced. Um, My academic colleagues often want to talk about defining their terms, first of all, and then they want to talk at length about the methodologies which they used and the limitations of those methodologies. And then we're very likely to produce a series of findings which are heavily caveated and probably conclude more research is needed. And all of that might well take two or three years and cost several hundred thousand pounds. I'm caricaturing ever so slightly, but, but not very much. And I completely understand why policymakers in local government, in, in the Senate, and elsewhere, will find that, A, quite frustrating because they need answers within their term of office, which is certainly no more than four or five years and much more likely less than that. Uh, they want answers when they're thinking about an issue not three years after we've launched a study in response to them thinking about the issue and whilst I think they absolutely have an understanding of the complexity of the policy process probably more than than any of us because they live it day to day a set of very caveated and tentative findings are of very little use to them so what we try and do in the centre is to find the the leading experts in the field and often they're not even in the uk we're working at the moment with some experts in canada on youth homelessness for example Uh, we've worked with experts in france on older people's housing needs Uh, there are a number of examples of that kind but we try and find experts who both really know their stuff, and who we think will be able i talk about writing and speaking human so can you present this in a series of bullet points literally on one side of paper because if you can't, I think it's unfair to expect that you're going to get a hearing amongst policymakers or in the wider public policy debate. I, and I, I found ministers remarkably... Well, perhaps it's not remarkable. I found ministers very, very receptive to that. And the fact that we started with two people five years ago and now there are 20 of us doing this sort of shows the demand that there is for that kind of brokering service which brings existing evidence very quickly and when it's needed into the decision-making process. What I think we're not very good at, and this is not in any sense a criticism of journalism, I I don't think we've yet worked out how we collectively, not not the Centre or Cardiff University, but how do we have a much more informed public debate? So I think in private, I've found ministers incredibly receptive to the evidence, but but somehow once that gets out into the rough and tumble of... The political world, and even more so if you're then trying to convey quite complicated policy issues in a way which somebody who's not very interested in politics and policy, and I don't know why anybody isn't, but I accept that most people aren't, and most of my friends aren't. Um, how do we convey that very sharply and simply and clearly in a way which means we can then have a much better debate about what would it mean to close some hospitals in order to have better healthcare provision? Is that the right thing? Is, is a free childcare offer A good idea or not? How do we grow the Welsh economy? These are really big and I think interesting issues but I don't think we have big and interesting debates about those enough yet.
0: Perhaps such debate is inhibited by uh, people like Michael Gove who a couple of years ago of course now infamously uh, said during the course of the um, Brexit referendum, we've had enough
1: of experts, we don't need experts Mm -hmm. in this country. How did you react when you heard that comment? Um, I was upset and angry, <laughs> uh, but it was at a time when I was upset and angry about the Brexit debate as a whole anyway, so once I cooled down. The interesting thing about Michael Gove is that he's actually one of the most avid consumers of expertise and experts, and in his role as a minister now, he's he's being very well talked about by his officials as somebody who who has actually reached out for independent policy advice as well as being quite receptive to the civil service so so I think that particular individual is very interesting because he's a he's a minister who's credited with having a clear vision for what he's wanted to achieve in each of the big departments that he's been in so clear political ideology but willing to use expertise to help him to understand how best to achieve those political ends so so I end up concluding that what Michael Gove said was more for effect perhaps than than how his actual practice has been borne out by a politician. But perhaps it's a bit
0: dispiriting that he thinks that he can get some kind of positive response from making such a comment, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And I guess the positive way for us to respond to that is to do the sorts of things that I was talking about just now. To think about how we make the most of the work we do by making it accessible. So the idea of engaged scholarship of a public academic is a really important one I think and there are colleagues who do that superbly, I'm not pretending that, that every academic is ill-equipped to do this but I think the, the systems which exist in universities have been slow to incentivize that sort of activity and the training that you get as a young researcher in the past certainly didn't equip you for that either, so a PhD training teaches you in research methods, teaches you about esoteric theories, teaches you how to write in a clever and inverted commas way for fellow academics. In the past, the sort of training that I had, such as it was, didn't equip me at all for the kind of public engagement role or speaking to policy and practice that I've got now. Then a couple of decades ago, we decided perhaps university lecturers should have some training in how to lecture. Um, didn't exist when I was... Um, are we early careers researcher and my students will probably say it shows? But we have, So we have a system of training for research and we have a system of training for teaching, but we don't really have any systematic training for what universities still call their third mission and the fact that it's the third mission tells you something about it as well. So, so I think there's a, there's a real need for more equipping of academics for this kind of role. Quite frankly, again, if if you're a junior researcher and you're wanting to progress to a senior lecturer role, uh, you need decent teaching satisfaction scores in this era where students are paying large amounts of money for, for your teaching. But more than anything, you need a few publications in high-ranked scholarly journals. And that world is a, is a absolutely a world apart from, from Cardiff Bay and the realities of policy and practice. So, so I... I think it's people that towards the end of their careers like me who can almost afford the luxury of thinking about how we engage with policy and practice and one of the things that really excites me about the centre that I'm now leading is that we are mostly a group I said there are 20 of us most of that team are early career researchers who have either finishing their PhDs or relatively recently finished their PhDs and I'm it sounds a bit pompous but in a way we're we're a car- we've got a cadre of young researchers for whom this will hopefully be just part and parcel of, of what they do. It will be part of the role of an academic. And we, we, we're not all academics either, so another important thing to say about the Centre is that, in the same way that we're trying to bridge the two worlds of research and policy, our team itself embodies that. So the first appointment I made was um, somebody who's now the deputy direct- one of the two deputy directors of the Centre, and he came from Whitehall, where he'd worked in the Treasury... Uh, and in the Cabinet Office we've got manage- ex-management consultants as part- senior members of our team, people who've worked in local government, people who've worked in the third sector. So so we're, it's an interesting dynamic in the team, but some of us are career researchers and have done very little else. Others have had real jobs in the real world, and bringing those two things together, I think, helps us to do this bridging role that I'm talking about.
0: Because what you're involved in now with your team is obviously... Looking at these um, various uh, areas of public policy with a view to informing the Welsh Government about uh, policy choices.
1: Now, how did you come to be in Wales in the first place, Steve? I was working at, so after I'd been at Aston University, which I rudely described earlier as being by an underpass in, in Birmingham, I was recruited to Warwick University, just down the road from Aston, where I became part of a Again, a, to me, really interesting team, a small team of researchers who were working very closely with local authorities. There were a consortium of 40 local authorities from England, Scotland and Wales who paid a small subscription each year to fund our posts. And we did research, which they, were, they co-produced with us to use the kind of slightly pompous language. So we talked with them about what their evidence needs were and together each year we designed a programme of research with councillors and council officers. Um, And looking back on it, it's strange how nothing changes, so at the time we were looking at the implications for public services of the ageing of the population, we were looking at European integration and the impact of Europe on public policy in in the UK, we were looking at how you stimulate economic growth, and we were looking at the whole deterioration of trust in politics and the political process, and this is in the mid-90s. So I I got some really interesting experience of working closely with local authority officers and leaders in that role. Um, And to be honest, I was set up to take on the leadership of that centre at Warwick. That was the career path that had been mapped out for me by the then director of the centre. Um, And just before that happened, Cardiff University came in and said would you be interested in coming to Cardiff not to inherit the Warwick Centre but to set up something like it of your own here at Cardiff? That's not something I'd given any thought to at all but it seemed to me on balance um, Wales would be a wonderful place to live and the chance to start my own centre might be both a bit more challenging but also more interesting than taking on an existing group. Um, 1999... The assembly was just starting up. I thought it's a chance to get in on the very early stages of this quite interesting devolution journey. Maybe the Welsh Government will have a need for research and insight at some stage. And so it was a combination of things, but we moved here in 2000 and been here ever since.
0: With the centre that you've set up now, yeah. um,
1: how did that come about? Um, So in 2013, the Welsh Government issued an invitation to any interested organisation to uh, bid to set up what at that stage was being called the Public Policy Institute for Wales. There was, in in fairness to the government, there wasn't very much by way of restriction on what form that could take. Um, So I, with a couple of colleagues in the university, Richard Wynne-Jones and Gareth Rees, were asked to take on the job of formulating Cardiff University's offer in response to that. We quickly started to talk to the other Welsh universities and we ended up producing a joint bid on behalf of what's become USW, wasn't at the time, um, Swansea, Bangor, Cardiff and Aberystwyth. So those five universities joined together. And I think there was a choice to be made at that stage. The money could have gone into a building and, I don't know, say five, ten researchers who would take it upon themselves to provide all the answers to any questions which ministers might come up with. My feeling was that 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 wasn't the right way to go. Um, And what was needed, as I've described before, was, was a small team who knew how both to talk to policymakers about their research and evidence needs and perhaps to have conversations which encourage them to think in different ways about what their research needs were, and then to take those questions away, and as it were, both turn them into questions which we could pitch to academic colleagues, but also to find out who are the academic colleagues who are best equipped to take on this role. So the model that, that Gareth, Richard and I pitched to to the Welsh Government in response to this invitation was, um, how about having some people who wouldn't necessarily know the answers but will know or can find the woman or the man who does have the answers. And that's where I think I came up with this idea of, in effect, a knowledge or an evidence brokering service. It's why I recruited from the civil service. That's my very first appointment because I thought I need to quickly understand how the civil service works from the inside so that we can work effectively with them. Uh, and that model, I think, has stood the test of time. We What we found was that The process of thinking through the best way to answer a question, which is put by a minister, took a little bit of time. So we typically take a couple of months to do what we call scope an issue, find out what what the the questions behind the question are, um, find out who's written about this, who do we think seems to be credible. We then get on the phone or on Skype and we talk to a series of experts. And by the end of that process, we usually have two or three people who I like to call the experts expert Um, so you get recommendations and you you get involved in networks which you really haven't even come across before and then we talk to ministers and officials and special advisors about so how would you like us to go about this work is it an evidence review a written report with us with a one-page summary in bullet points or would it be better if we brought together a group of experts to talk with officials and special advisors and really work through an issue in a safe space and with a structured conversation which will facilitate and which will then probably produce a report at the end of. Or in some cases is it just best if we bring in Professor so and so and they have a chat with the Cabinet Secretary and and you'll understand there are some Cabinet Secretaries who relish that, it's almost like being back at Oxford having a tutorial. There, There are others who prefer the written report or or the written briefing. So so we tailor it both to the nature of the question that's being asked, but also the person who's asking the question, I suppose. And the way in which I describe that is it's a demand-led approach to producing or translating, not in a linguistic sense, but from one field to another, uh, the evidence, whereas what academics tend to do is to have a brilliant idea and then go and research it. It's a producer-led approach, if you like, and then maybe at the end of that they think, so how can I make this useful to somebody and how do I disseminate it? It's far too late at that end of the process. It's much better that we're focusing our effort on, on the issues for which there's demand about. There are a lot of
0: consultations that are initiated by the Welsh Government, but one wonders to what extent anybody beyond the circle that's immediately affected uh, in the particular policy area takes notice of that and responds. Clearly, I think you'd be the first to agree that Wales does face huge challenges, Mm -hmm. and therefore the kind of research that you and your colleagues are engaged with is actually um, extremely important for the future of Wales. But do you have the sense that while you're able to provide ministers with advice, the vast majority of people just completely disengaged and don't really care
1: it's possible even probable um, but I think that's that's the challenge should come back to us on that we shouldn't criticize the lack of engagement when we haven't ourselves tried to engage in a way which makes sense and is accessible that's a part of my personal journey has been to learn about things like Twitter and the importance of communications and the importance of the way in which you package the message. So sticking true to where the evidence leads but having in mind the ways in which different audiences might want to access what you're you're doing, talking to journalists. Um, All things which, uh, frankly, are are second nature to a minority of academics but are not part of the normal academic behaviour, really. And in our role, finding a way to do that which isn't simply grandstanding, because I guess... Again, I'm going to get into really hot water here with colleagues. But there are academics who are very prominent in the media. Uh, But sometimes they're seen as having their own agenda which they're, they're pushing. And I've been very careful that we don't do that. I think we need to follow where we think the rigorous and reliable evidence is leading. So we're not cropping up on BBC Wales regularly for the sake of it or to stir things up. Where, where we communicate it's because we think we've got a piece of evidence or a body of evidence which is useful for people to know about. Um, I think consultation has a part to play uh, and one of the really great things about Wales is as everybody says it's small enough that if you want to get engaged in that sort of thing you can and it's really important I think for government that it does operate through networks of organisations and individuals because sitting in Cardiff Bay, there's very little actually that a minister or a civil servant can do on the ground. So you you have to take people with you and it's the people who are delivering the service and consuming the service who probably know what it's really like. So I would see consultation and evidence from expert patients, consumers of social services, of people who don't have their bins collected in the way that they want at the time they want... That's a different kind of evidence to the sort of evidence that we bring, but I think it's an important part of the process as well, for for all the reasons that I've said, which is why I'm not claiming that research-based evidence is the only thing that should inform policy and often it shouldn't drive policy. So I'm I'm very keen that communities have a say, that the voluntary sector has a say, that other organisations do too. But I'm hoping that we can help to inform that in our own way.
0: Recently, your centre was involved, um, together with the Wales Governance Centre, also in um, Cardiff University, in producing a report about the implications of um, Wales' new tax powers. Mm. And um, I looked at that report, I wrote about the report, but um, uh, what immediately struck me, actually, when I was being briefed by... um, people in your team and the Wales Government Centre team was again how complicated the issue is um, and uh, I mean I remember uh, from a political perspective uh, back to a little earlier in the um, uh, in the devolution uh, story if you like where uh, there were uh, politicians who were saying we must be very very careful about this and in fact um, it's a it's a, it's a Tory plot mm-hmm. to undermine the uh, Labour Welsh Government and that sort of thing. And those comments were being made. I mean, it was Owen I mean, Smith who was actually making those comments when he was the Shadow Secretary of State for Wales. Um, but in terms of uh, whether Wales should have income tax powers or not, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the debate in Wales has very largely been from a sort of nationalist, nationalistic perspective, rather perhaps than the forensic policy-based mm-hmm. um debates that perhaps there there should have been Um, and it was really only with uh, the report that was produced recently that I became aware of all of these complexities and uh, uh, the fact that um, uh, whether it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing is really going to be dependent on the performance of the Welsh economy uh, over the next few years Um, but that really until your report came out have been completely absent from political debate so in a sense you're coming forward with the report to say these are the uh, challenges related to this policy but the policy's already been made we've already got income tax powers perhaps it would have been better if we'd had the report previously i don't i don't know um i mean is it putting the cart before the horse sometimes
1: so it's really kind of you to to say nice things about the report i think the the colleagues who worked on it did a really fantastic job, and we were grateful for the, the coverage as well. We've had a whole series of reports come out in the last three or four weeks, and they've all had really good coverage. Um, I, perhaps it would have been better to have had some of that modelling in advance, but I'm not sure that it should have changed the decision because um, maybe a naive view, but I think it's good for Wales to take responsibility for raising some of the funding for the public services which it provides. It changes the nature of the debate here. We have to think about how are we going to resource what we feel that we need in terms of health, social care, education uh, and grants to farmers in hill, hills, hills, uh, hilly areas and so on. So I, I think it's a, that's a real maturing of devolved institutions now to have to think about resources and funding as well as just spending and services and i don't think my view of that would change in the light of the report that we've produced what the report i think shows is some of the choices that are now available about how those new powers are used or not used um, what would be the best ways to maximize the tax intake for wales what are the implications of people living on the border will large numbers of people move to england if Income tax went up a penny here in Wales. Probably not, the evidence says, but interesting to think about. Uh, is there a way of using the tax-raising powers to pursue issues of equality and social justice? And the report explores some of that. So so quite often I think we're thinking about the questions of how, not necessarily what, uh, and the what decision can be an in-principle decision. It's good for Wales to take on that responsibility... Now, how do we make best use of it in an informed way? What are the choices uh, that are available to us?
0: And Another interesting piece of information that came out of the report, of course, was confirmation that the idea that services could be improved simply by, as it were, soaking the rich just wouldn't work because we don't have enough rich people in Wales no. to be able to uh, tax until the p- squeak, yeah. as Dennis Healy used to say. Yeah. That's... Poses a bit of a challenge to politicians mm. as well, doesn't it? Particularly those on the left, maybe, who um, like to give the impression sometimes that inequality is as a consequence of uh, an entrenched, established uh, perspective in society where you've got mm. a significant number of very rich people who could be taxed, and that would, uh, by doing so, um, a- a assist the rest of us, and particularly the poor. So that is something which they have to think of, I guess, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. Key message coming from that report was whilst it might be attractive to some politicians to think about increasing the higher rates of tax very significantly and maybe reducing the basic rate of tax, its effects would probably be perverse and unhelpful in terms of what they're, they're trying to achieve. It's another one of those slightly counterintuitive, maybe slightly uncomfortable for some politicians pieces of evidence but I think really important if we want to know what's actually going to work um, so the message of that report is taxing the super rich is probably not the way to go it's more about thinking about how you use the money which you do have available in a way which is going to help promote just social justice and uh, and attack inequality another possibility but how do we attract far more rich people to Wales I mean there, there is some scope for some slightly off the wall Thinking about that, because when you compare the numbers of higher-rate taxpayers, as you say, that we have in Wales compared to the UK as a whole, uh, we're poorly represented in in that regard. The really accurate comparison is to compare other parts of Scotland and England that are a bit like Wales, because London constantly distorts these cross-UK comparisons. But, But there would be scope for thinking about how do we make Wales... A place which is more attractive for people who are able to create large numbers of jobs, for example. Who who are the people who are going to be entrepreneurial and create economic activity? That, that's an interesting line of inquiry, I think, which is suggested by this report. Because as you say, in the end, the key message is it's the economy again. Stupid. The more we can grow the economy, the bigger the tax take. If the economy does less well relative to the rest of the UK, then we're in some trouble with this new responsibility.
0: So if you were an ordinary person trying to come to terms with the kind of messages that uh, your research is able to um, convey to them, would you be
1: optimistic about the future in Wales? I would try to be. I, I think one of the challenges of this job, actually is that you can get to a a Friday afternoon and think we've been thinking all week about the terrible policy challenges that we face to which there aren't any simple answers. And it does have the potential to to kind of become a bit depressing and layer in Brexit and all the unknowns around that, whatever you think of the decision, right or wrong, it certainly introduces a, a whole new level of uncertainty into what's going to happen to our economy and our society over the next few years. So potentially yes but my optimism stems from the fact that we we are in fact part of a global community and the issues which we're grappling with are not uniquely Welsh at all there are other aging societies around the world there are other societies where people struggle to get the skills they need there are other societies which are going to be massively affected by the industrial fourth industrial revolution around artificial intelligence and so on so so i would say the optimism lies in a, a kind of a free trade in knowledge and evidence that's that's what I, I want to promote so that we're part of learning about how to address these challenges along with other societies around the world and the, again i don't want to be critical but there is a tendency i think in wales in the past to think we have to find the solution here i remember when i first came down at, an official said to me, Steve, you need to understand, you've come from England and we would really rather learn good practice from Venezuela or anywhere else, frankly, than England. And I, I, I completely get what lay behind that statement and I'm not in any sense ever saying that England has all the answers by any means. And I think England could learn a lot from Wales, but there is that reciprocity that needs to happen between Wales and all sorts of other countries and parts of the world. And the politics are sometimes slightly different, the nature of our communities are sometimes slightly different, but the big policy challenges are pretty much the same across most Western countries.
0: Steve Martin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.